Hello and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast with me, your host, Brenton Weber. Today, I'm going to be speaking with an incredibly interesting gentleman called Ralph Kaiser. The reason we're speaking to him is, as those in New Zealand will know, we are on the verge of finding out the results of the cannabis referendum that took place at the same time as our general election two weeks ago. Ralph is going to be providing us with his wisdom that he's collected over his years helping banks leverage technology to manage CBD, hemp and cannabis risk. He basically provides cannabis banking solutions um, which really focuses on compliance, compliance and compliance which are the three key things that people need to bear in mind when they're entering this industry and I hope that you'll find him incredibly valuable. I'm sure you will so without further ado Here's Ralph. Hello and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast with me, your host, Brenton Weber. And today I have a very exciting guest for you all. Um, let me introduce you to him without no further ado, Ralph Kaiser. How are you, sir? And how's your day going? I am well, Brenton. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here, and my day is going excellent, but it's kind of ironic, and you and I have talked about this before, because not only are we in different time zones, we are in different seasons right now. So right. right now, I'm looking outside, and it's snowing. Well, we have just got summer arriving, so uh, yeah, I feel for you, mate. I've been wrapped up for for months now, so it's good to be getting some warmth again. Um, your winters are pretty brutal where you are as well. We don't really know what winter is in comparison, do we? That's right. In fact, I took a screencast of my phone last January and sent it around to my colleagues across the U.S., and it showed minus 41 degrees Celsius. Wow. <laughs> that, that equals cold. That That's does cold. equal cold. I bet you've got wonderful <laughs> central heating where you are. We do, and uh, that can get a little expensive on those minus 41 degrees Celsius days. Yes, I bet it can. Um, we, uh, we can't talk about the weather all day, and I guess our listeners are wondering who you are and why I've got you on the show. And I guess, you know, just a little bit of um, a bit of background and context. We spoke about a week ago now um, because I reached out to you because New Zealand is currently in a bit of a state of limbo. We had our referendum around the legalisation of cannabis and the election was a week and a half ago. And we get the results on Saturday, I believe. Exciting. And it seems the perfect time to be speaking to you, Ralph, because why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your journey on how you've got to where you are. Because I think it's going to be of incredible importance to our country's approach if we uh, get the yes vote. That's right. No, it's, it's an exciting time for New Zealand and certainly what I'm reading, the referendum results are hopefully going to be favorable. 
And that's really how you and I had met because I am the CEO of a firm called Integrated Compliance Solutions based uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada in the United States. And we are uh, one of the leading cannabis banking compliance and payment processing firms. So we work with financial institutions who want to be able to successfully and compliantly accept cannabis entities as banking clients. And of course, that comes with some interesting compliance requirements, regulatory requirements, because really, particularly in the United States, regardless of the state that you're located in, uh, particularly, of course, those that are legal, legal, I should say, there is also an illicit market, a black market. Mm. So that prompts requirements for financial institutions to be very careful that none of those black market funds get into their financial institution. And that's one of the services that, that we help with as a fintech company. Gotcha. And such an important thing to do, although you were telling me some rather interesting stats around the black market and the illicit market that is still very much in existence in some, I guess, what we would certainly consider in New Zealand, very mature markets that have had legalized cannabis for quite some time now. Yeah, and that's a, a great point. And regardless of the jurisdiction, whether it's a, a state in the U.S. that is looking to uh, go legal or a great country like New Zealand, that has to be considered really by all regulatory uh, entities, whether it's those that are providing licenses to uh, business individuals who want to get into, uh, whether it's cultivating, distributing, uh, extracting uh, the, you know, the whole supply chain uh, of, of cannabis. Uh, but yeah, I'll, some of the stats, and they're not my stats, they're stats from uh, analyst companies, whereby, for example, California, one of the more mature markets, big market for cannabis, and they have a very robust legal market, but they also unfortunately have a very, uh, very strong illicit market where it is estimated that in 2019, almost 80% of all cannabis sales in California came out of the illicit market. Wow. Uh, Massachusetts. Yeah. I, and, and this is, you know, this is of concern to everyone, not just the financial institutions, but obviously regulatory uh, groups, legitimate business people. And for <clears throat> jurisdictions that want to have a, 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 a good, strong cannabis economy, this is something to to definitely consider is how to deal with the illicit market. As I was going to say, Massachusetts, they are estimating about 70% of their sales last year were illegal. And then if you look at uh, other mature markets like Washington State, Oregon, even Colorado, they can be 30 to 40% of all sales being still coming from the black market. So now those are states, right, Brandon? Those are, those are states. Mm. But if you look farther north in Canada, that went legal in 2018, that 
is a is a country that still has about 70% of its sales are estimated to be illicit. Mm. And this, again, comes back to how to set up an industry properly, a sector properly, all the controls, all the requirements. And it's what we do day in and day out at our firm, but we do it at the, at the banking level. Gotcha. With regards to that black market, I mean, it's one of the, as you know with me and from the conversations we've had, we're very outcome focused. It's all about better customer outcomes, better human outcomes. Yeah. And one of the big arguments in favor um, of the yes vote was definitely breaking the hold of the black market on those people trying to get legal or um, get, get cannabis for their own use. What, what can we learn from those markets and your market that's currently still significantly the majority um, an illicit industry? Um, what lessons do we need to learn? What should we be taking on board at this very early stage, assuming that the yes vote is a yes vote? Right. Well, I think there's a, there's a number of lessons to be learned, and it can be expensive to start a, a cannabis uh, cultivation entity or extraction. So to be able to have that facilitation of investment, uh, whether it's even, uh, and this is one of the opportunities for financial institutions to be a first mover in uh, accepting a sector like cannabis, to be able to support the uh, entities with investor accounts. Uh, that's a good example of that because Obviously, there is a, a high cash, a high investment requirement that is needed in order to build out these, these facilities. Yeah. So that's absolutely crucial to understand, uh, as well, the taxation. So uh, often, and in some of these jurisdictions, the uh, governments got ahead of themselves on really looking at the taxes that could be collected from the entities. And of course, then that results in different pricing between the black market products as well then, of course, the, the, uh, the legal products. So if there's that huge gap in pricing, then that tends to fuel the cheaper illicit market. So you're absolutely right in that various jurisdictions that have already legalized, whether it was just medicinal or medicinal and recreational right now, have left uh, breadcrumbs or footprints of, of success. And I always say to uh, either government officials or regulators that are looking to uh, put cannabis, uh, legal cannabis into place, Look at what others others have done. And I have three boys. I think I mentioned this to you. I have three boys. Yes, One of my did. favorite sayings uh, <laughs> when they were growing up was, it's okay to learn from your mistakes, better yet learn from others. Yeah. But the same thing can be said about successes too, right? So learn from others' successes, mimic that, and, and uh, put those types of practices in place. And that can certainly apply to the cannabis sector. One thing that I've noticed from some of the documentaries that have been aired prior to the vote, there was a there was a um, a, a New Zealand journalist called Patrick Gower, who ran a series across two years of um, a, 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 an analysis of the U.S. market, the Canadian market, 
um, the current black market in New Zealand. And one thing that seemed apparent to me was that people of colour who were in some ways at the forefront of gaining cultural acceptance of marijuana use, you know, the likes of Snoop Dogg, the, if you look at the number of um, the numbers in the criminal justice system um, that have certainly um, been out of kilter with an even usage um, level across all cultures. Right. Yeah. Are the is it the fact that these compliance, um, these strict compliance rules, and the access to investment is that keeping out what a, a, a group of people that should really be um, enjoying this new legal status, and they should be able to be building legitimate businesses upon them. Yeah, absolutely. That that's a great question. And that is again something that can be learned from other jurisdictions because that is something that uh particularly in the US some of the legislators, senators, governors have been very carefully uh looking at. And even some of the pending legislation in the US uh, that uh, at the federal level is putting into place uh, legislation or wanting to put into place legislation, depending on where it's at between the House and the Senate in the U.S., as to what to do for, for minority-owned marijuana businesses, even uh, women-owned uh, uh, businesses, mm. uh, how to ensure they have access. Uh, Illinois had actually a, a point system or something similar to a point system for minorities that were part of uh, a, a cannabis entity that was looking to, to uh, become licensed or, or to, uh, to obtain a license, an investment group looking to attain a license. And uh, we've seen that in, in Canada as well for First Nations, uh, the indigenous people of Canada, where there are uh, advantages for them as part of the, of the licensing process. And then certainly even in the U.S., sponging some of the legal ramifications of the past that uh, certain socioeconomic groups had suffered under uh, because of uh, marijuana uh, being a, a Schedule One substance. And that is also included in some of these pending uh, legislations. One of the things we have to understand uh, and this is something great to learn uh, from from the U.S. situation. Is and and you and I had discussed all this pending legislation that uh, includes the Moore Act, which is known as the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. So that's a bill to decriminalize and deschedule cannabis and to uh, provide for reinvestment for certain persons uh, that have been adversely impacted by the, the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. There's the Marijuana Freedom and Opportunity Act, the Medical Cannabis Research Act of 2019. What's actually interesting, if, if there's a theme about all of this legislation, is that it's somewhat of a Band-Aid or you know, just something as a temporary measure until legalization occurs. But even through that process, uh, I, I, I totally agree with you, where there is that opportunity 
to have a level playing field for various uh, uh, socioeconomic, uh, various uh, peoples to, to ensure that there's access to that licensing process as well as being part of this, this lucrative sector. Apart from the mix match of rules and regulations from a federal to a state level, <laughs> yeah. clearly a, a massive pain point for people to continue their journey on to become a business owner or to become an investor in a new burgeoning industry like this. What, are, what do you think the other major pain points are for those individuals, those people who are starting out, seeing that the law is about to change, wanting to make the most of it, wanting to make themselves more legitimate, or even they were always legitimate, but they want to now get involved in an uh, industry that will have a, gro- um, a massive growth following the end of prohibition. Well, see, and this, again, is lessons learned from the the U.S. side, where it's a Schedule I substance on a federal basis, but many states have have legalized it. So uh, particularly as that relates to to the banking side of it, there are federal regulators in the U.S. for financial institutions, and there are also state regulators for financial institutions. So what this tends to uh, result in, and again, lessons learned, is that uh, particularly for dispensaries, they, uh, many of them in legal states where they've not been able to uh, obtain proper banking, they are an all-cash business. Right. And as a result of being an all-cash business, uh, there's various retail analytics that show the additional cost of an all-cash business to an entrepreneur is between 5 to 7% of revenue. Wow. Because you have, yeah, it, and it, just imagine what that does to a bottom line. So there's that disadvantage to the entrepreneur. But there's also a public safety issue. And that is a, a business that is dealing in all cash because that cash has to go somewhere. And uh, we actually, uh, I know of a story, uh, one of our colleagues, because we're based in, in Las Vegas, uh, this happened a couple of summers ago, and he was just running errands uh, around Las Vegas on a Saturday, and he came across one of his contacts, one of his uh, just friends that works uh, at a dispensary there. And unfortunately, Brendan, uh, this gentleman, he was all beat up. He was bruised. He had black eye. And, 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 mm. and Chris, uh, my colleague, said to him, what, what happened? And he goes, Chris, I, I, I wasn't careful enough. He was one of the people transporting cash from the dispensary to a vaulting facility in a gym bag. And he was followed. Wow. And so he was obviously robbed, mugged. And uh, uh, thankfully, just uh, temporarily injured. But that is one of the situations that these entities have to deal with if they're strictly working on an all-cash basis. Part of the reason for that is because it's federally illegal in the U.S., uh, the credit card networks will not allow transactions through their network that are THC-based, that are marijuana-based. So as a result of that, these entities cannot get credit card or debit card uh, uh, processing, and they deal in all cash. So there's certainly that part of it. 
So not only the not only the five to seven percent, but you've yeah. also got the very real danger with a strong illicit market of those lines being blurred and you being sucked into the nefarious aspects of it. It, it could be. And then the nefarious aspect of it, too, is that black market money trying to find a home uh, to be used in a, in a financial institution. That happened regardless. I mean, New Zealand has good banking laws, good AML or anti-money laundering uh, laws, mm-hmm. and those will have to be followed to prevent uh, that illicit funds. And I saw a figure, I think, I think in, a couple of years ago, it was estimated your, your illicit market, your black market is estimated to be about 40 million. Mm. So it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not a small number. It is something that uh, has to be considered by all parties to, uh, the the industry and particularly financial institutions that want to bank bank the sector, and one of the other things too, like financial institutions, just, just think about it even from a personal perspective, how important banking is, or on how important banking would be if you didn't have it. How would you pay your mortgage? How would you pay your bills? Uh, imagine that from a business perspective, and I I have seen it where. A cannabis entities that had banking all of a sudden, for one reason or another, the bank shut them down and all they get is a cashier's check. And without banking, a cashier's check is not worth a lot of money. So that is the difficulty. But if you have that industry set up well, that sector set up well, and the banking is in place, then a lot of different aspects flow out of that for continued success and continued stability in the industry. So what you're doing at Integrated Compliance Solutions is an incredibly important part of the ecosystem, right? We tend to think so. And, <laughs> and it comes back to just what we said was uh, it is a matter of, of allowing for robust and stable banking for the cannabis entities. Having said that, we work strictly with the financial institutions. So we're a fintech, software as a service company. We have the tracking uh, capability uh, based on the point of sale and what is what is known as seat to sale providers. We're integrated with them to ensure that one dollar worth of licensed sales means one dollar worth of deposit into the financial institution. So we make sure none of that illicit money gets into the financial institution. And then that bank and or in the U.S. It could be bank, it could be a credit union. Uh, they then feel very comfortable being able to expand out their uh, bank offering to to the cannabis entity with that kind of tracking in place. Gotcha. So, 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 are you having, or, or what level conversations are you currently having with Australasian banks? Because they surely must need your services and um, and for their for their customers. Yeah, we we are pretty much U.S. centric right now. We've had uh, a lot of inquiries on the Canadian side because uh, obviously that industry continues to grow. Canada and Australia, uh, very similar types of economies, and to some degree a little bit on the the cannabis industry uh, side of it. So we've also received inquiries there. We've even started now to receive inquiries from Africa. 
uh, and Europe. Uh, Africa is really wanting to take a look at uh, developing a, a burgeoning uh, cannabis economy uh, as well. Uh, but what is definitely, regardless of the jurisdiction, regardless of the country, we see those common threads, those commonalities, which is, yes, the desire to have the cannabis economy, make it legitimate, licensed entities, good compliance. Along with that, though, there are those illicit markets, and that's just where the compliance has to start uh, and, and the illicit market end. Uh, but as part of that, that's where the tracking and tracing comes in to ensure that uh, it is only the, the legitimate players that are in the industry that are selling the product. And of those sales, it's only the licensed legitimate money that is getting into the banking system. And that's regardless of the jurisdiction around the world. Right. With regards to our jurisdiction and our government, um, trying to get those better outcomes, trying to get more people into an industry, trying to get wrestle the the uh, the power away from the illicit market. What do you think the three biggest hurdles or pain points that they really need to focus on at the very beginning of the journey, like to to get to a point where they're even able to have conversations with people like yourself and to use your very important services to continue growing in a legal compliant way? Yeah, uh, that's a great question because the first thing is infrastructure, which whether that is through uh, uh, a solid licensing process for the uh, individuals, the entrepreneurs who want to be part of the sector, that has to be a fair, quick, transparent uh, process. And th this is what we'd already mentioned is that it is expensive and it can be uh, a, a huge investment to start particularly one of these cultivating facilities. And of course, any industry starts with growing the the, the legitimate plant. So cultivation is, is the first thing that, and the first licenses that come up. Again, there's little tidbits, little breadcrumbs of success in many jurisdictions uh, around the world, in the U.S., in Canada, of what to do and what not to do, uh, certainly with that. The second thing around infrastructure would be Linking that now to what I mean about the licensing process, because part of that is a heavy-duty investment. So what comes with an investment is the need for that banking. And we have helped financial institutions, and I see this as one of the cornerstones of success, is when a financial institution in a state, for example, in the U.S. that has just uh, become legal, if they're one of the first movers in the market and they start accepting those investment accounts even before they're operational and require that tracking, then they've already built the relationship with those uh, entrepreneurs who are looking to get licensed and collecting all the investment dollars. And those financial institutions are helping facilitate that whole process by having the investor or the escrow accounts. That is so so incredibly, incredibly important. And then if I were to say the third thing uh, would be linking it really to number one, which is a, a not a long drawn out 
but have a fair licensing process as to how those licenses are going to be uh, granted. Uh, we already discussed, and I like that approach around the social equity, how to really bring different groups together into this uh, industry and really look at it from the, you know, from the New Zealand uh, side of it. Uh, your prime minister is probably one of the most respected leaders in this in the world today. It she does she's done amazing, amazing in the last election for you all, of course. But I think partially thanks to Stephen Colbert, she uh, has become a, a rock star uh, in North America. And I can't imagine there is a door that she could not go knocking on anywhere in this world that she would not be welcome that people would not be willing to share with her what it takes to be successful in this uh, industry and really in any industries. And what, what a great asset any country can have that either wants to bring expertise, knowledge from other jurisdictions to theirs, or look to expand uh, the, the business or the sector beyond the borders of, of your great country. And that is something, you know, if I were to circle one, two, and three, the, the points there, I would suggest leveraging and letting her be that diplomat and such a, a great representative of your country. Let her go around the world where needed to do exactly that. Yeah, we, we need to make sure we don't try and do this on our own and in a vacuum and siloed off from all of the experiences and all of the, the, the already more mature operators and industries around the world. That's right. And it, it, there's government officials that can help. There's uh, uh, operators uh, that can help. There's compliance. There's uh, uh, attorneys. There's accountants that have all seen the, the pros and the cons, the smart moves, the not so smart moves. And that is where those successes have leave those, lead, left those traces and that's what you want to be able to to pick up on. And they're they're in Europe, they're in Canada, they're in the United States. And as I say, your prime minister has done just an amazing job promoting your your country around the world. There's that opportunity that exists for her to to go knocking on some doors and and to learn. We've talked a little bit about um, the pitfalls, the pain points, but as we mentioned earlier, this is all about, in my opinion, better human outcomes for so many. What positives have you seen in the more mature markets where the legalization of cannabis has had a really good impact? Well, I, I think there is, uh, there, there, there's numerous and there's different levels of impact or success that's been had. And certainly some of the anecdotal uh, evidence around the benefits of uh, the, the medicinal side of uh, cannabis. And I actually remember speaking with uh, one participant in the, in the industry uh, who introduced me to uh, a mom who had a, a child with, um, with epilepsy. And it was quite a quite a serious uh, epileptic episodes that this child of hers would have. And 
they had tried numerous different uh, drugs and therapies, but it was the cannabis, it was the marijuana that had helped uh, this child control those seizures. Now, that's the perspective of the child with the epilepsy. Mm -hmm. But she told me something that was really interesting. It was after starting the marijuana treatments that the sibling could now have sleepovers. So when you start, right, yeah. So when you start to think of the impact, we always think of the direct impact. Yeah, we like to think A, B, A to B. That's right. We We don't look at the system. And the massive yeah. um, knock-on effects that everything has, both both positive and negative, of course. That's right. That's right. And uh, I know um, particularly uh, some of our first responders and uh, with specifics to uh, our great military. And regardless of which country they come from, uh, they always do amazing work. And anything that we can help with them, with their PTSD, their post-traumatic stress disorders. And there's, again, a lot of anecdotal evidence and success where cannabis has been used in order to, to help the, uh, those so, such important individuals, whether it be the first responders or our great military uh, personnel. So that's at the individual level. And uh, I know, particularly in some of the more more mature uh, markets where uh, there have been, because of the tax dollars that have been garnered from the industry, that people have pointed to a rec center or to some other public facility that was built on uh, the tax dollars that have come from a legitimate, fully licensed, compliant legal cannabis industry. So that is what we've seen some of the, you know, some of the benefits that have, that have been put forth uh, both at the individual level, but also that as a result of being able to collect the taxes, uh, bring it out of the back alleys, make it legitimate that way, safer for really all parties involved, that those are some of the benefits that that uh, we've certainly witnessed as as being an ancillary business to the to the industry. So we're talking about outcomes that historically have been almost entirely in the hands of the pharmaceutical industries. Right. Yeah. Is we we had an, I'm wondering about the lobbying aspect of the pharmaceutical industries, especially in New Zealand. And hey, the, the 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 election has been and gone. We had a really interesting situation over here with the New Zealand Medical Association, who came out on that Patrick Gower documentary series that I spoke about. The chairman, the, or the chairwoman, came out and said, "We strongly believe that." everyone should vote no, that this will not deliver positive health outcomes. And right, she yeah. based that on a 2012 document. That was, the, that was the length and breadth of the amount of research that she did on that. And she would have definitely influenced a lot of people sitting on the fence. About a week before or two weeks before the election date, um, a group of doctors put a petition together saying, this is bullshit. We actually are seeing everywhere around the world since the legalization that there have been 
extremely positive impacts on people's health. Um, a lot to do with the, the incredible number of products that and and that, that stem from the plant. Um, do you think that we could have been subject to some lobbying from a very powerful <laughs> biofarm industry? There could be that certainly as well. And regardless of the country, uh, cannabis has a stigma, a historical stigma attached to it. It certainly does. I'll be honest, I'm a bit nervous what's going to happen when we put this podcast out because there there definitely is that stigma. You know, people who have been putting their head above the parapet have been doing so very bravely this year, I think. Right. And and it's... The the stigma that exists has a long history attached to it uh, in many different countries. I mean, in the the U.S., it goes back to the 1930s. It goes back to the timber industry and, and, uh, you know, uh, timber versus hemp and newsprinted. There's there's an interesting tie-in. And then Mexican immigrants, that's where the term marijuana comes from, that resulted in a tax act, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. And uh, all obviously scheduling it to the tune of uh, putting it alongside of heroin and LSD and 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 uh, drugs like like that. So we are facing a PR crisis or a PR uphill battle. When we look at our our great medical doctors and look how they're trained, uh, a lot of them don't go through the uh, anything to do with cannabis or the the medicinal benefits. Part of the reason for that is this is medicinally or legitimately such a young industry. But there's not so, many research opportunities. That's huh? right. That's exactly it. And all of those are happening literally as as we speak. But I can talk from uh, what we've seen in the in the more mature market. So there are now. Definitely shifts in the pharmaceutical, but particularly in the in the the medical community, uh, shifts with more and more doctors looking to uh, become knowledgeable about uh, medical cannabis, how it can benefit their their patients as well, and with the patients to get to get more patients may take patients. You know the the two the two different words. So even even as a as a jurisdiction becomes legal, we're going to have to let people become comfortable uh, with the uh, with cannabis, and that includes the medical community. That will include the pharmaceutical uh, community as well. And it's a balancing act uh, right now, I would suggest, in, in even some of the jurisdictions in the U.S. that are either looking to become legalized uh, here in the, the election that's coming up uh, or have, have recently to to get more of the stigma out of uh, people's minds, that historical negative stigma. Are we seeing in those mature markets um, uh, an improvement in mental health, um, an improvement in uh, well-being? Um, Because we hear a lot of stories from the, the no side who say this is an incredibly dangerous move for our children that it's an incredibly dangerous move for those that might have more of a prevalence towards schizophrenia. Um, I would also imagine that because there is a rising level, there's a global, there's another global pandemic 
that has yeah, been going yeah. on for years, which is this grow, growth in depression and a growth in disconnection. Um, when we compare those with legal markets with those with illegal markets, have you, are you, have you got any numbers or are you aware of, of any positive impact that can be seen in the numbers? The Anything that we would have right now would be more on the anecdotal uh, basis. Of the research side yeah, and yeah. I, and I want to be mindful of uh, uh, that one with, with any substance that we take into our bodies. One has to be mindful, obviously, of of what we're taking. That's one of the the benefits of more the legal aspect of it and the legal. Uh, 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 aspect of the market or legal market, because now there are more controls as to uh, how the product is being grown, pesticides, herbicides, any of those uh, that are being um, being utilized, and uh, anything else that could be potentially getting into, into the, the cannabis substance, as opposed to an illicit market where there are none of those, of those controls. But it, we continue to hear more of those uh, anecdotal, you know, more of the anecdotal evidence for various uh, ailments, uh, certainly as well. And uh, even with the the pandemic that we're seeing on the COVID side of it, leading to greater stress levels, whereby people have turned to to cannabis to to be able to help them uh, with that. But again, pharmaceutical research wise. This we just always have to take uh, a look at this from a an anecdotal basis right now because of just how young, on a legitimate side of it, this this uh, industry is, and yet it's such an uh, a plant that goes back thousands and thousands of years BC. Yeah. Uh, in well, probably in, in, before we end up on the planet. Let's be honest; it's probably yeah, that's right, that's right. We're, we're but it it, it really millennia. Yeah, and, and it comes back down to uh, being able to support it with research, being able to support it with those numbers, and that's what we have to give the the industry uh, a chance to do. Um, talking about the benefits, CBD. Now that's something that is very close to what you do because what you've you've had you've had a big growth in that area. It's an area of the industry that New Zealand's not really talking about. In fact, there's no, as far as I'm aware, there's no legislation to include it in the legalisation. Or certainly, it's not not included in. We had the the medic we had medical marijuana legalised in April of this year. That was put through, but still CBD oils are illegal. And yet I see in places like the UK where it's they've got, they've got a really strong um, export market for marijuana. Right, they do. Um, yeah. In fact, I think it's their health minister who's saying that we should they shouldn't legalise. But his wife is um, one of the chair people of, uh, of, the, <laughs> of the UK's largest export market. But one thing that is gaining traction over there. And a lot of sports people are coming out is the benefits, the very real health benefits that they're experiencing from CBD. So even without the legalization of THC products in New Zealand, surely for better health outcomes, CBD should be a market that we should be looking to expand upon. Yeah. And CBD is 
the non-psychoactive, uh, one of the um, uh, compounds from the the cannabis plant. And in the U.S., it was the Farm Bill of 2018 that legalized hemp, which is less than 0.3% uh, THC content. Of Does which, it have similar CBD levels, low CBD levels, or is it also is it high in CBD? It well, point it, it depends on the substance. They really delineate the the legality of it uh, under the Farm Bill as to the THC levels, but they can have very high levels of uh, CBD uh, certainly in the in the compound. But here again, we have this dichotomy between federal and state in the U.S., where some of the states. Even though it's federally legal, it is federal. It is state illegal in some states. Uh, CBD entirely. Other states, it's illegal in the form of edibles. So that's where we have to really understand. And our firm is one of the leading payment processors for CBD merchants. So we have to really look at the legality on a state by state basis. But CBD has some uh, some great. Uh, advantages uh, at the individual level. Um, I use it for my IBS, and uh, it's really helped me on on that side of it. Uh, my mom, uh, 84 years old now, uh, osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, and she takes uh, some of the CBD with uh, a bit of the THC as well, and that's that's because the THC helps with making the CBD more effective, uh, opening up those CBD receptors in, in the human body. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and she's had great results, so much so that she's off of um, many of her painkillers. So when we talk, you know, getting back to the pharmaceutical industry or more, not so much the, the industry, but the use of opioids within our society, mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing more and more people utilizing a what's called the entourage effect, the CBD and the THC together as a means of, if not eliminating, at least reducing their dependence on on painkillers, on opioids. And it's the opioids which have quite a dramatic negative effect on uh, societies around the world. And uh, that is one of the one of the advantages of looking at CBD and a small amount of THC together uh, as an alternative to those. Right, I see. Um, it's amazing that it's, we hear about as as I've said, we've had um, a legal medical cannabis um, ruling here for a while, but you can only get um, products that are produced by biopharm companies that have had almost the different parts of the plant separated and taken away so that they're just selling one aspect of it. Are they missing, I guess the research, this is going back to the opportunities for research, isn't it? That surely must be a place where the industry has to look to see what the plant does holistically, as opposed to what each individual component of the, of the chemistry does. Yeah, and there is a there is extensive research being done, and there is a a general belief that uh, on a research basis we haven't probably nearly tapped into the plant and its uh, underlying compounds uh, even even close to to where we are today. So, and and then that has 
created a, an offshoot of, of synthetic compounds, certainly as as well. And there's a lot of research and a lot of derivatives that are being looked at to be to be created that way, and all with uh, the the aspect of of helping the human being. So it's a uh, it's a good process to certainly be in. It's a it's a good sector to to take a look at. And for those that are concerned about it, those are those are legitimate concerns. We have to listen to those concerns, and that's where we come back to ensuring that the industry is set up well, the compliance is done, the licensing process is good, the banking is set up. That that being part of the infrastructure for investment prevent you know all cash businesses from from occurring and following those little nuggets of success that have been seen does lead to a, a stable and robust industry well I hope that the people that need to be listening to this are listening um, we'll obviously be sharing this across all of our channels Let's assume that there's a yes vote and we have the beginning of an industry starting, which let's be actually, to be honest, we already have an industry here. There's a lot of people that have already invested a whole heap of money, smart people, people who have contact with governments. Um, and I can't believe that they're investing, let's say, $5 million of their own money, which is certainly what I know three people did, um, without some assurance that there will be some form of um, opportunity here, even I guess if that's export. Um, but let's say um, let's say we get the yes vote. What should my listeners be doing apart from reaching out to you? And please let us know how we can contact <laughs> you, and what um, you know, and, and in what what capacity you'd like to hear from people. Well, they can certainly come to our website, which is ICSLV, as in Victor.com. That's ICSLV.com. They can seek me out on LinkedIn. As you know, I'm active on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, that's Ralph Kaiser, R-A-L-F, just with an F. And uh, I'm always happy to, to talk to industry participants and, and help where we can and where I can. Uh, I, I would really think that if anybody is looking to invest, be part of this sector, uh, I'm, I'm a 30-year investment guy. I'm not a banker. I'm not a payment specialist. I'm an investment person. And that's where doing the due diligence doing the homework is really uh, crucial and having a good understanding of what you're investing in, what you want to be able to, to certainly accomplish. And that is uh, the, probably one of the first steps from a, from a regulatory perspective or a compliance perspective to have a really smooth licensing process that is open, that's transparent, that people have an understanding as to who can obtain a license. I think that is absolutely crucial as well. And not to have in certain jurisdictions around the world, we saw license applications taking a year, you know, to even two years to process, uh, which really doesn't advance an industry regardless of the sector. So that's where the government has to step up and make sure that it is a it is a good licensing process. And as part of that, then that's going to certainly facilitate the investment. 
having a good banking infrastructure in place to uh, be able to take those funds in, make sure that they're legitimate funds. That is the basis to start a good cannabis, a good cannabis sector. That speed to market, that speed, to, that speed along the journey is going to be so key to beat the black market, isn't it? Because while it's legal, while it's if it's let's say it becomes legal, then all of a sudden you've got people that were operating with a huge amount of risk to their own personal safety, to their own personal liberty. They now have laxer laws, which means that they could potentially scale up their activity without the same fears that they had before, because then it just becomes we're running an illegal. We're running a business illegally instead of we are running an illegal business. Right, right. Well, and, and I think that's really where then the, the oversight on the illicit market and participants uh, needs to come in, in into play. And uh, maybe as part of that legitimization, there has to be a continued crackdown on the illicit side of it in order to give the uh, legitimate businesses a good chance to start. And that comes back down to not overtaxing, uh, making the application or the licensing process uh, transparent, easy, accessible that way. And yes, speed to market is is absolutely crucial, and and making sure then just that black market that there is eyes on it, that uh, law enforcement is present, and that uh, those those dollars are not coming into the banking system to continue to feed the the black market. Before I let you go, and by the way, we'll put all of your details in the notes so that people can reach out to you um, in the way that you've you've, you've told us. You've Perfect. Been contacted um, from a customer experience perspective, and I I think that we've been talking about human experience, but we're a customer experience podcast. What do you think some of the lessons? that we could learn, or let's say, what are the top three? We like doing top threes on this show. Um, What are the top three lessons in customer experience that the true, the, the people that are winning in this industry, the people that are doing so well because of what I assume in all industries, those that are doing well are usually those that really put their customer first or front and center of the decisions. What are the three best customer experiences, um, changes that you've seen over the last three or four years while the, the, the markets have been maturing? Yeah, the first one is to be patient with new customers. And, and it links to number two, which is educate them. And it is, though, as a consumer, it is our responsibility to not only be taught but to learn and uh, start now uh, educating yourself. There's lots of resources to understand it. And whether you're a pro or you're a con to the industry, uh, educate yourself uh, regardless. Uh, and that that's not necessary to change anyone's mind, but uh, particularly as the results are coming down now for your great country, uh, particularly as uh, uh, should it go on the legal side of it and a, and a yes is the way that the country decides to go, even more of a reason to educate. But that education goes back to number one, be patient in that process uh, because of that stigma that exists. 
and uh, understanding that people have a mindset. There's some things that may need to be uh, overcome and uh, uh, don't be just, uh, you know, overzealous in it certainly as well. And probably the number three one is uh, take your time with it. You know, it's it's the, the type of thing that uh, particularly if, if you're walking into a dispensary, uh, come in educated, but understand that uh, particularly a lot of the great uh, dispensaries across North America, they have very well experienced what they're called. They're called bud tenders. Those are the people that help you as you go to the counter and that listen to them, talk to them. And whether it's a CBD topical cream, in, it may not be necessarily the case for, for anyone in, in New Zealand, but even if it's a, an edible or uh, something, whatever the product is, just, just be prepared to listen and take that uh, a little bit slow. It's, uh, does, it doesn't have to be something that, that uh, you jump into with really both feet. Be open-minded to it and uh, listen to some of the, the stories that people have had where a lot of other traditional means of medicine have failed them but something in the CBD THC world has helped them. Brilliant words of advice and wisdom there um, from you, Ralph. Um, we try and keep this under an hour, and I'm really struggling to do that. Um, I've got so much more. <laughs> that means we have to do part two. <laughs> well, I was going to say we should, regardless, we should we should do a um, we should do a bit of a um, a look back once we know what the the vote is. Um, and who knows where that's going to go. Um, I'm hoping for human outcomes that it's going to go in a positive direction. I think you've done a really great job of opening our eyes to the business side of it, which doesn't get discussed during the referendum because it's all on the, the scary stories or the it's, it's generally all around the criminal justice side of things. Um, so thank you very much for, for um, talking with us. And I, I, I literally, I can't wait to talk to you again in, in the next week or so. It's been my pleasure. And I believe the results are October 30th, right? All the best to everyone in New Zealand with that. All the best with that. Thanks so much, Ralph. And uh, you have a very good day and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking with my guest. Please consider subscribing um, so that you don't miss any more of our interesting human-centric conversations. We'd also like to continue extending the discount that we offer our podcast listeners on the HTO Educate platform. And the details, are, as usual, are in the show notes. Once again, thank you, and I look forward to talking with you next time.